Hello, and welcome to a new episode of From the Honeycomb, a podcast that creates a spark of positive energy. Here we discuss all things architecture and design, to travel, exploring Vastu Shastra with a modern approach, and I connect with other like-minded women to share their story. I am your host, Katerina Burinova, and welcome to From the Honeycomb. And today I am very excited to be sharing with you. He has been my co-host on From the Honeycomb, but today he's coming on as a guest, which is my husband, Jesse. Jesse, welcome to the podcast. Hello, thanks for having me. I'm very excited to have you on today because today you're going to be talking about what a contractor is, their role on a job site, and we're going to talk about your importance of when you come into a job. All right, but before we begin diving into the world of construction, Let's take a moment to ground down and think of something that we are grateful for in the present moment. So Jesse, what are you grateful for? I'm grateful for my relationship with Josh. My son is, unfortunately for him, his truck broke down this weekend, but he called and I was able to go out and help him get it picked up and get to the service center. And just just nice, nice to have that experience. Oh, yeah, that was really, really sweet of you. And it was good to see him and have breakfast with him. So, yeah. For me, I would have to say I'm very grateful to have some more family living around us. I think the this past weekend we saw some family and especially my cousin, Veru. I hope she's listening to this episode. But it's been really nice having her around more and like being able to call her and talk to her in the same time zone. She's originally from the Czech Republic. So it's been really nice having her around and um, yeah, we've got our birthday trip coming up, which will also be an episode on the podcast, but it's just been really good having her around. So I'm really grateful that she's here. All right, Jesse. so you are a licensed contractor. Do you want to walk the listeners through kind of your journey of how you became a contractor. Sure. So I'm a licensed general contractor. So there's lots of different types of contractors. There's electrical, there's plumbing, HVAC, roofing, but I'm a general contractor. So I'm just kind of like oversee all of those other productions. I got into that primarily because my dad is a licensed general contractor as well, has been for 40 plus years. So when I was Growing up, you know, that's, I always watched him go off to work and do that. And then in high school, I actually started laboring and working on construction sites, cleaning up, digging, breaking down lumber loads. But then I went to the military and left for a long time, came back, and I've been working for my dad for the past 16 years. And then just last year, some of your, some of your, Listeners may may remember uh, my own license last year, incorporated and created my own company last year. Yeah, congratulations too on that. That's a big big deal. Yeah. And I like that you pointed out that you're not just a contractor; you're a general contractor. And so, what is your role on a job? So my role typically starts early on the process with a client, usually before. So our projects are high-end residential. So most of them are multi-million dollar construction contracts. And so the scope, the size and scope of those are fairly complicated. So usually my role starts 
in the bidding portion, which is before the project is ready to begin. So my role starts with meeting clients, meeting their professional team, which is the interior designers, the structural engineers, the interior designers, the architect, and getting to, getting an understanding of what the scope of work is. And then I go into a bidding portion to where I assign costs to all of the different things that those entities have proposed and I present that to a client. Once the budget is finalized, my role is then to start the project with whatever that phase may be. Sometimes it's full-blown demolition and we just take a house to the ground. Sometimes it's a light remodel where we, so it usually starts off with coordinating different subcontractors. So my responsibility is to hire and manage all of the different subcontractor trades that are involved in the project. And my role continues. I am a liaison between the client, the architect, the designer, the neighbors, city officials, uh, county, state, whatever is involved for that project, all the way through up into moving the client back in and then finishing off whatever punch list that they have, you know, for small items at the end. And then it's done. Then I typically stay on. Uh, most clients prefer that that I stay on and maintenance the home, put them on a schedule, take care of you know these homes are fairly complicated in design and material, and you know they're co they're all coastal, so they get really beat up by weather and salt, and so it's it's a sort of a lifelong process. Absolutely, and and it's good you shared with the listeners too about the bidding process and getting involved. Sometimes contractors get in general contractors get involved early on, even in the design process. You know, in some projects, architects, contractor, maybe the interior designer, all meet with the client, and then sometimes you're part of that bidding process, where it could be just you bidding the project or multiple other contractors bidding, and then the client chooses who they would like to work with based on price, personality, whatever their criteria is. So that's, there's multiple ways, but overall it seems like your projects are how you described it. Yeah. What would you say to someone who is looking to work with a contractor? What are some things that they should look out for when they're interviewing? Because you go on a lot of meetings with potential new clients. What are some maybe good questions a listener could ask their potential contractor. Well, I'm assuming that, that that the listener is looking for a, or is listening to this in context of a residential remodel. Oh, that's true. I don't true, have yeah. any experience in commercial work, and I don't have experience in track residential, or you know, as I, I own, you know, only pretty much deal in coastal higher end contracting. But I would say as generic to anybody looking to hire any type of contractor, whether it's a general contractor or an electrician, plumber, whatever it is, would be to check their references. Ask for references and then actually check them because that's going to be your best avenue to find out how these people are. Because in my profession, I also have to vet many subcontractors. A lot of times clients will want to bring their own plumber on board, electrician or audiovisual guy or whatever. And it's my job to talk to them and see if they actually know what they're doing and see if they are a good team player, 
see if they're an honest, see if they're qualified. And so the best way to start with that is talking to the other contractors they've worked with and other clients they've had. So checking somebody's references is really, really important. No, fair enough. Definitely references. And what would you say is one of the most satisfactory moments during a project for you as your role as a general contractor, as a GC, we can call it for the rest of the episode? Most satisfactory moments. I, like you mentioned, sometimes we're involved early on in design phase. So like right now I have a project like that where I've been working with this client for about a year and a half now. And they're still struggling their way through the Laguna Beach building department trying to get permits. So that that's satisfying to help help them negotiate through just the different steps towards how to get their permits pulled together quickly. What are some of the pitfalls? Help guide them. I really enjoy providing guidance to people who are otherwise very educated, very accomplished, more often than not very wealthy, but through all of that and all of their assets and all of their strengths, getting through to the permitting process is something very foreign to them. And so it's nice to be able to take somebody who's otherwise, you know, very much a self-starter and then helping them actually figure something out that they would be completely lost without. No, absolutely. No, and it is it, the construction process is intimidating, especially for homeowners. And as we are focusing this episode on residential, it really is an intimidating process because there are so many steps and there's really no like guide to how to, you know, go through a project seamlessly because there are so many different variables that go into play, so many different personalities, so many different parties. So yeah, so the construction process as a whole is definitely, it's long, it's rigorous. Do you have any favorite parts of a project or starting a job? Mm, I would say some of my favorite parts are, because one of the things about being a GC that I particularly pride myself on is having a very thorough and comprehensive and accurate budget, which I, which I generate in the early stages when I'm bidding. And I do that by really studying the plan, studying the specifications, listening to the client, listening to their architect. And then beyond that, I try to anticipate things that I think that are not on the plan, but that I, that through my experience, know that will come up. And so one of my one of the things I enjoy most is having something come up on a project that maybe some of the other professionals had not anticipated and then have it be that momentary panic in the team. But then I can step in and be like, I said, you know, it's not a problem. I had anticipated. Here's a line item in the budget that's already been covered. Nothing really we need to do. Nothing we need to worry about at this point. So that's nice because I spend so much time bidding. I spend so much time trying to think through the project ahead of time that when those moments pop up to where I I have the solution before anybody realized there was even a problem is a point of pride for me. No, and you do your job very well. You are very detail oriented. I like working with you. We have a project right now we're working on together. Well, that's another thing we should talk about is there's the GC, the general contractor, and then the superintendent and their role. 
kind of breaking that down because we are working on a project together, but you are not the superintendent. Correct. I don't, yeah, I don't superintend work anymore. Not every GC has superintendents, and not every GC has full time supervision because it is costly. It's costly to have a full time supervisor. But in our line of work, our projects are complicated and lengthy. Like most of our projects are 18 months in length at a minimum and roll into 24 to 36 months because they're large houses and they're complicated and they they have a lot of uh, intricate pieces to them between foundation and framing and flashings and they take a while to build. Uh, they're large, you know, they're in gated communities where they have very limited access and limited hours. And so, yeah, so I, I don't superintend work anymore. I did enjoy that, like, but it is, you know, it's, it, it does have a limit, like there's a salary limit to that, that, you know, that if you're okay with, then that's great. But if you want to break through that, then you have to press on, you know, become a GC. And get licensed. Yeah, no, absolutely. And do you have any, because we talked about things you do, like anything that, like any challenges in construction? I would say some of the bigger challenges are are having to rely on other people. Mm. There's mm-hmm. there's only so much you can do on your own. There's only so much of a project you can pay attention to, and you have to find ways to delegate. Sometimes you're delegating to a subcontractor. Sometimes you're delegating to a vendor. Sometimes you're delegating to an architect, engineer. Sometimes you're delegating to a client. Like the my role is, I'm there to guide the project and if at some points of the project there's always tasks that your client has to accomplish they have to go out and pick plumbing fixtures or they have to make a decision on the kelvin lighting color in their recessed lighting they have to pick a cabinet style i mean there's that pick appliances like so there's certain things that that don't having to i don't like having to babysit and sometimes that's required in my job because the people are not doing what they need to do and I have to sit on them. And it is easier when it's a subcontractor or a employee. It's easier to, because you can just put straight up pressure on them. You just be like, you're going to do your job or you're going to be fired. It's a lot harder when you have the architect, engineer, interior designer, or client that need, that is not doing what they need to do. Then you have to be a lot more politically correct about it. You have to find clever ways to incentivize them to do their task and get get you the information you need so you can move forward. But yeah, that's babysitting is not what I like doing. And I don't mind delegating. I wish I could do everything myself, but that is something I don't enjoy. Very good. Well, I do have some questions from other listeners. So I wanted to ask you some of the questions that came up. People were very excited to have a contractor on. So one of the questions that I thought was really funny is, um, it's another architect who wrote in is, what is it like working with architects? Uh, Wow, that's that's a pretty broad question. I've worked with really good architects. I've worked with terrible architects. I won't name names on, on either side of that spectrum. And I've also worked without architects. I have some clients who just, their scope of work doesn't quite necessitate an architect. It's small enough to where I can do my own plans and process through the city and I don't 
just don't, they don't need an architect. And so working with architects, you know, working with a, a good architect is great. I have, we have a large project right now that we're trying to get through the cabinet drawings. And for those of you who are familiar with cabinet drawings, you know, we, the cabinet shop makes drawings, you have to approve them, and then that's what's fabricated. And so this is a larger project. So the cabinet plans are 197 sheets of paper, 197 sheets of, of plans, which is a lot of plans. And we've had two meetings with the client, both were three hours long each. That's as much time as she can allot to on those days. First, you know, we got through 50 pages. Next meeting, we got through like 20 pages. And so it's me, the, the architect and the client in, in my office. And it's just gonna take forever. So that architect and I sat down last Thursday and we met from 8.30 in the morning to 2.45 in the afternoon. And the only reason we stopped is because there was a site meeting we both needed to attend at the same, at that project. So we left, went to the site meetings and then worked till four o'clock. So it's just not really common for a GC and an architect to sit down one-on-one -on -one and spend that much time going over cabinet drawings. But because this project is very complicated, the interior designer is out of state and it just, and the client is very busy and traveling a lot. It basically comes down to if he and I don't do it, it's not going to get done. And so I, I really like working with that architect. Like it would have sucked to do that with an architect that was incompetent. Like it would have just been a, a terrible time, but it was actually really very productive. We got a lot done. We're still not done. We're on like, page 140 something, uh, mm -hmm. so we still have 50 something pages to go. But in that case, it's great. It's great working with that architect. I've had other projects where the architect is clueless and doesn't understand, you know, what's involved on the job. And it was just like, you ask questions and you get back nonsense answers. And it's just great when you have a competent architect. It absolutely sucks when you have a crappy architect because you're stuck there's so there's some things that you can't get past without the architect's input and politically there's a lot of times where you're just not able to just bypass them like it sometimes it just doesn't look it's not going to go over very well with the architect when you just decide not to bring them architecture related questions so sometimes you just have to struggle through it oh it's kind of Piggybacking off of the first question is, what makes you want to work with an architect or even interior designer repeatedly? You've kind of already answered that a little bit, but what would make you want to work with an architect or interior designer repeatedly? Uh, okay, assuming, you know, so if I want to work with them, it means they're, they're a quality professional. So I'll just take that as an assumption that they already, they already do their job well. It's the same reason why I like there's certain subcontractors I like working with. Like I have a favorite plumber, I have a favorite electrician, I have a favorite framer, you know, cabinet guy, so on and so forth. It's because when you know how somebody works, you can you're just so much more efficient. And so if I like working with an architect, it means they they do their job well. It means that like they put together a good set of plans that are easily understood, that they 
help you manage the client because an architect can be an adversary on a project. If your architect is not helping you manage a client well, or they're working against you, which we've had happen in the past where an architect or interior designer has their own agenda. And, you know, that can be very frustrating. But when I want to work with somebody again and again, it's because we have like established a rapport. I understand their drawings. I understand their details. I know what they want. So especially in bidding, like if I understand like a certain architect has a, just has a real strict criteria on soundproofing or HVAC work or whatever, I know that that's one of their pet peeves. I will spend extra time in the bidding process really detailing out what do they expect so that in the but so the budget's completely ready for them because it sucks when you have somebody say an architect details out framing condition or let's say a cabinetry condition and you put in a, a typical budget and then after you're awarded the project and you start they go oh no like the cabinetry should be you know, like stained grade walnut and should have this distressed you know light and finish and and they start throwing all these things into the client that and say like oh yeah you should have known that it makes it really difficult so i would say it's it's having that level of knowledge where you're just super efficient together and you brought up a really good point which i want to hone in on any architects listening to this episode is the importance of having clear drawings that you as the gc can understand there is so much information that has to go on the architectural plans, the site plans, details. And as an architect, we have to get the plans through the city, through the zoning department, through the building department. They have their additional notes that go on there. But you as the GC, you are the end user of our plans, of the architect's plans. And it's so important that our plans are legible so that you can read them and that you can understand them and that we put as much information so that you can put together the most thorough budget for the project. It's very important that our drawings are, as the architect say, as much information as possible. Yeah, it's because there are architects, and I've wor- worked with them, who draw the bare minimum that the city w- will accept to grant a permit. Mm-hmm. And What's really frustrating about that, it's the same as like I've had this question asked of me many times and some, you know, by potential clients and they'll say, oh, well, you know, do you build to code? And my answer is always no. Like code is the absolute minimum the city, county or state will accept in whatever that respective component is, framing or concrete or whatever. Like code's the minimum. That's the bare minimum. No, I don't build the code. I build above code. Like I build better than the minimum. But that same thought process can be looked at with the architect. Does your architect make create plans that are the minimum the city will accept? Okay, great. So the city accepts it, stamps it, and then you have this very generic plan that can be interpreted a hundred ways. And so then if you're the client, yeah, it costs you less because the architect spent less time drafting. But mm-hmm. let's say you want to get competitive bids. 
and you send your very, very generic plan out to three GCs, they can interpret that all different kinds of ways. So you may, the prices you get, may get back aren't really apples to apples because the, the GCs, one, your GCs may be at different levels. And two, you know, like they could have assumed, you know, that your tile is porcelain. One could have assumed it's ceramic. And one could have assumed it's dowel tile. Or if there's no notes about stair banisters and finished floor materials and ceiling, you know, specialty finishes, and it's like it could be all over the place. So unfortunately, there is a bare minimum. And, and it, you're, I don't think people are doing themselves a service by not having, I mean, not having a, a well-developed plan. There's the other side of that. There's plans that are ridiculously full of, of information, just beyond what you need. Like, and that can cost a client a lot of money in architectural fees to, mm-hmm. to, to draw them to that level that may not really be all that necessary. So there, there's a happy medium in there between the bare minimum and then specifying out like, what kind of cabinet knob you're supposed to put onto something? You know, if the cl- if that's important to the client, great. If it's not, then 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 that's probably doing them a disservice. And so the last question is: day to day, what items stress them out the most? They have a really hard job, so they meaning the GCs. So what stresses you out the most? What stresses me out the most for me? I'll, I'll answer for me, and then I think I'll answer for typical GCs. For me, it's, I tend to be stressed because I I have just so much going on. I have so many projects and I have two companies I'm trying to run. And I think I personally am stressed because I'll get overwhelmed. And so I don't know that that's really a lot that, I don't think that's applicable to every, every GC. Like some GCs take on one project at a time, some, you know, some take on some take on 20, 30 at a time and they're larger companies. I think for other than that, what stresses me out the most is kind of goes back to that whole delegation and babysitting. Because I, I just I think one thing that's really hard for a GC to learn is that nobody works as hard as you do. Like when you're thinking about a task and you're like, okay, tomorrow these guys need to do X, Y, and Z. They should be able to get that done. Great. Then I can move forward with these other things. Tomorrow comes and they don't get X, Y, and Z done. Because when you thought of that task, you thought you thought it through. You're like, okay, they have to do this, and they have to do this, and they have to do that, and it'll be done. And they can do that in an eight-hour day. Awesome. Great. Because you're thinking of how you would do that, how you personally would go from that task to that task to that task, and then it's done. But the reality is most of your employees don't work as hard as you do. They don't think like you do. They will make mistakes that you may not have made. And so the stressful part is having to manage that because you, everybody's their own management style. I'm not the type that shows up to the job and just starts dropping the F-bomb and throwing crap and you know yelling at everybody. That's just not my management style. But that doesn't mean I show up to the job and I'm happy about the mistakes or the delays or the errors or whatever. So the most stressful part is the babysitting. It's just that people, you have to recognize that 
you know, stuff's not not gonna happen in you know in the order you thought it was gonna happen. It's like you wake up and you start your day with plan A, and by lunchtime you're on plan E, and by the end of the day you're on plan you know Z, and you just just kind of shake your head and just shake it off and just be like, well, you know, tomorrow I'll just start out with plan A again and see how it goes. No, there's definitely a lot of moving parts. There's a lot going on and and you you take those challenges face on, but yeah, I I'm the first one to show up and say I screwed that up. Like that's my personality. Like I'm not gonna try to blame a vendor or a delivery company or one of my men or a material. Like if I screwed up, I'm gonna show up, I'm gonna tell you I screwed it up and then I'll take responsibility for it. Cause that's just how I'm built. That's just how I'm made. And so I do do take those challenges head on. But then also when I I also don't show up and trash somebody else, be like, that wasn't my fault. That was so and so. Like mm -hmm. that's just not me. It's just not helpful. No. Showing up and saying, you know, saying it was the engineer's fault or you know, it's drywaller's fault or whatever. That's just not me. It's just I show up when the client's there, my job is to just be calm, collected, to have everything under control, not place blame fix whatever the problem was and move forward. And then if that person is my employee or my subcontractor, take them aside later, one-on-one, -on -one, discuss with them what they did, you know, why it made things more complicated and then just learn from it because mistakes are mistakes and you know, we're all going to make them. Just, I just want to learn from them as all. Just my advice for people who are looking for a contract, like I said, is definitely check out their references. And then I think one of the things that potential clients really enjoy from my, my presentations are my budgets are five pages long. It's a spreadsheet with hundreds of categories and that there's pretty much a category for every possible component of a residential construction project. But I think people don't like, or what's really intimidating and hard to understand, are proposals that are just big lump sum numbers with no real clear breakdown of what's in that number. Because I think a lot of people, you know, they hear that that word change order, and they just mm -hmm. freak out because yeah, nobody likes change orders or unanticipated costs. And I think if you're working with a GC and Maybe the references check out and you seem to be vibing with them, but they have just a giant lump sum proposal. Ask them to break it down a little bit. Say, hey, uh, you know, I'm sure this took a long time to put together. I really appreciate the time you put into it. Do you think you could break this down to me for me in just basic categories? Framing, electrical, plumbing, tile, roofing, foundation, painting. Just ask them to see if they can put that into just smaller numbers so you can understand because that way you, it may help you identify something about your project that maybe they overemphasize and it's not a particular part of the project that you're especially concerned about. So like, let's, you know, let's say like the landscape planting, like, you know, they've got a huge number in there and you're like, whoa, hey, I, like I actually would 
because maybe the GC thought, well, I'm going to put in really mature plants. That way, when they move back in, it doesn't look like everything's not a tiny seedling and it takes 15 years to mature to where it looks more, you know, full. So maybe they put a ton of money in there for big mature plants, which and big trees, cranes and blah, you know, maybe the client goes, hey, I, I don't mind a really young landscape. I don't mind it growing into around me a little bit. You know, if that takes 10 years, I would like that kind of savings. So, so that's kind of an instance of might help you identify a place where the GC put more money in there than they, than, than you really want. And by identifying that you can correct it and, and then still match up with your GC and move forward without just looking at some giant number and just being like, no, you know, I'm good. Well, that's very true. Well, Jesse, thank you so much for taking the time to come on from the Honeycomb podcast and talk about being a general contractor. We never really have had a time to like kind of talk and about it in such detail. And I loved hearing your perspective. No, thanks for having me. Thank you. And if you like this episode, please give it a heart or thumbs up and click the follow button so you can stay up to date on the latest episodes. You can follow me on Instagram at From the Honeycomb Podcast. You can also subscribe to my monthly newsletter in the link provided in the show notes. Thank you so much and see you next Friday.